Great are you, Lord, is the reason that we've come together today in order to proclaim the great name of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're glad that you're here today. How about, uh, how about we applaud how the praise band has brought us to worship today. We thank you so much. Would you take your Bibles or smartphones or something? I tell you, if you've got a real Bible with you, I guess it's real even if it's on your smartphone, but if you've got one you can touch, I'd rather you open that. Second Samuel chapter 13, 2 Samuel chapter 13. We'll be reading several verses in that chapter. We welcome you today. We're glad that you've come, you've showed up, and uh, we're glad to see you today. We're on a journey. As you know, church, we're always on a journey. We're on a journey in order that we might exalt the name of Jesus. We're seeking to proclaim his name, certainly to the community. We want to be in the center of the Lord's will. As a part of our journey and our vision, we kind of painted a vision. We believe the Lord has given us over the next five and 10 years as part of that. We're journeying through the Bible. We're making our way through all of scripture. We won't read every verse and chapter you understand, but we're going to make our way. We're in we're in 2 Samuel talking about David right now. Uh, it's kind of our goal that by 2030, if I'm still here, if the Lord tarries, uh, we will uh, be looking in Revelation. But so between now and then, now many of you have been on the journey with us for the last couple of years. And some of you have come somewhere and joined. Some of you may be here just today as a part of our journey, but the Lord has us all here for a purpose. And so today I want to tell you a story today, but I got to tell you, it's not a very good story. It is a Bible story, and it's a Bible story. We believe every verse, every chapter, every story in the Bible is given for a purpose and for a reason, and we know that we have that here before us today, so we're going to be looking to that. It is the first and foremost glimpse that we get into the home life or the family life, and particularly the children of David. And the story we're going to talk about today, it comes after David's episode with Bathsheba, the murder of her, of her husband Uriah after Nathan has been confronted David and after uh, David's confession of sin. And God forgives David. In fact, we talked last week about repentance and forgiveness and talked of wonderful lessons we learned from God's word about the grace of God given in this chapter and throughout certainly all of the Bible. And so this comes not long after that. We realize that the Lord has forgiven David, but unfortunately because of David's sins and there's some consequences because of his sins that has affected his home life and his children. Read with me 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 1. It says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Now David has 19 sons that are mentioned in the Bible. So we know he has at least 19 sons. And Tamar is the only daughter that is mentioned here of his sons. Amnon is the oldest of his sons. So we're going to mention some names today. Some you will recognize like David. Others perhaps maybe are not so common. But uh, Amnon was the oldest. Absalom that is mentioned here in this verse and we'll talk more about. He is the third of the sons. And we don't know how many daughters he may have had. But in this scripture it actually tells us and uses said something about the daughters of the king, plural, so we know that he had many. Now, uh, you've got to hang on here because I need to tell you that this story might get just a little bit confusing as we tell it, but as you know, sometimes it can get confusing in some families. Here was Amnon, David's oldest son. He's in love with his half-sister, Tamar. She's often referred to as Absalom's sister because they are full brother and sister. Now, when I say Amnon is in love, I use that word love loosely, as we will see. 
he is obsessed with her. Tormented is the word that is used here. Apparently cannot eat or sleep. And his friend and his cousin Jonadab says to him one day, says, why do you look so haggard every day? After all, he's the son of the king next in line for the throne. And Amnon confides in his cousin and his friend and tells him that he is in love with Tamar. But maybe obvious, for obvious reasons, he does not know that he can do anything about it. So Jonadab gives this advice or maybe gives this scheme. He said, go lay in your bed and pretend to be sick. And when the, your father comes to see you, tell him to send your half-sister Tamar to come and prepare a meal before you so you can eat out of her hand. Amnon follows this advice. When the king comes to see his son, he asks for his half-sister Tamar to come prepare a meal. But when she puts the meal before him, that he does not eat. He asks then everyone that is in the house to leave the house. And they are left there alone. And then Amnon asks Tamar, to come into the inner bed chamber. Can you tell that, or get the feeling that things are going from bad to worse? And when she brings the food to his bed, he grabs her and he says to her, come and lie with me. She protests and said, I cannot do this thing. Uh, this is against what we are prescribed to do in all of Israel. He begs him not to do this thing. It would bring her shame and humiliation and he would be considered a fool among God's people. She even says, maybe in desperation, ask our father for my hand in marriage and surely he will grant your request. But marriage is not what he was after. The Bible says he was stronger than her. He overpowered her and he violated her. After the deed is done, we're told in scripture that Amnon then hated her sister. He hated her more than he loved her before, according to the text. And then he says to her what was only two words in the Hebrew he says, get up and get out or get up and go. And she refused at first. She said, sending me away would be the worst thing that you could do to me now. And he called a servant, had her thrown out of the house and locked the door behind her. She tore her robe, which was described as robes worn by virgin daughters of the king. She put ashes on her head and began to weep with her hands on her head. Her brother Absalom comes along and sees her and he puts two and two together and he asks the question, has your brother violated you? He does not even wait for an answer but instead seeks to give her words of comfort but surely did not do the trick. The last we hear of Tamar, she lives the rest of her life in Absalom's home as a desolate woman. King David finds out. Her father, his father, their father. He hears about what Amnon has done to his own sister, to his daughter. The Bible says that he is angry, but there is no record that he did a thing. Absalom, meanwhile, hates his brother for what he did to his sister. He does not speak to him good or bad for two years, but he's plotting revenge. Two years passes and it's sheep shearing time and he's plotting something and there's gonna be a, he's gonna have a feast at his home and he goes first to David, the king, his father, asked if he and all the family would come for the feast. David refuses to come, insists that it would be a burden on Absalom. Absalom then asks David to allow Amnon, the oldest son, to come. David resists the idea, but Absalom insists and all the brothers are invited to the feast. Then Absalom tells his servants, he said, at just the right time, after most of the drinking has been done by Amnon, I'm going to give you the signal and I want you to kill my brother Absalom. Do not worry about the consequences. I am the one giving the signal. He gave the signal. 
and all, they all struck Abnon and he dies. All the people flee, including the rest of David's son. Word gets back to David even before the sons arrive back home, but it's the wrong word. The message David gets is that all the sons have died by the hand of Absalom. David falls to the ground. He's mourning and he's weeping. All the servants are doing the same. And uh, isn't it amazing how fast bad news travels, particularly when it's not necessarily true? Jonah, dad, remember him? He's the cousin. Somehow he knows the truth and he says, Absalom has killed Amnon and him only. Well, better perhaps, but still tragic. In the last few verses of this chapter, chapter 13, David has found some comfort after the loss of his eldest son after three years, but he still longed to go to Absalom who has fled north and he has stayed away from the family for three years. Well, there you have it. Not a very uplifting story, but all the Bible stories have purpose. And I want to encourage you today not to leave here today or otherwise. All you have heard is tragedy that has come about because of the results of a dysfunctional family. I guess it might help you to feel better, perhaps maybe about your family and some of your problems. But that's not the main goal. Now, when we read this chapter in the Old Testament and other perhaps similar stories in the Old Testament, what we need to do is to be able to shine the light of the cross of Christ on it and the lessons from God's Word so that we might find great value from stories such as this. And in this case, this particular story. We're going to discover today, and you have your notes there, lessons learned from a dysfunctional family. Most of these lessons that we learn from the people in the story will be lessons on what not to do. But we will seek to make applicable lessons for a New Testament believer as we learn lessons from those who are involved in this particular episode and story concerning David. I want you to be careful today as we talk about these different ones that are in the story and kind of unpack who they are and what's happening here. Try not to think of your family members or identify your family member being like one of these in the story. This is not our purpose today. Well, first we're going to learn a lesson, believe it or not, from Amnon. We're going to call him the self-indulgent older brother. The self-indulgent older brother. He claimed to be, he claimed to be in love with his half-sister Tamar. Now we know previously, like in Genesis, we know that Abraham was married to his half-sister. But we need to remember, of course, that this is before the writing of the law. We find in Leviticus, this kind of uh, marriage was forbidden among the Israelites. But there was a bigger issue, because true love or marriage was never his intent. 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 2, if you read that verse, it says, And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now notice that last couple of words, to her. If he was in love, he was not asking anything with her or anything for her. Uh, the word also... For virgin is a word that means not just a woman who had not known a man, but it's a word that means one of marriageable age in this particular case. He sees her for what he can get for himself. What is described here is not love, but surely it is lust or perversion of what God had in mind or anyone in polite society. In fact, I think it may be even the love is love people would even have to agree. We're just talking here amongst one another, but I, I find myself wanting to talk with somebody who either has a sticker on their 
car that says love is love or even something maybe in their yard or even churches sometimes that have that in the yard so that I might be able to discover exactly what it is that they would be talking about. I have to believe that any reasonable person would have to agree that what some people call love is not really love, such as the story we've heard today. I mean, we probably could think of many examples. The 50-year-old man said he was in love with a 12-year-old woman. Surely no one would agree with that. We could think probably of many more examples, but we probably end up being a little regressive or even repulsive. But because of the lesson that we need to learn, I realized from Amnon, I realized that any conversation that I would have, it would need to be tempered to those who might disagree. Because the lesson from Amnon is this, love like Jesus loved and taught. Love like Jesus loved. Listen to the things that he taught. Jesus defines love for us. He sacrificed all for you and me and for everyone who places their faith in Him. Jesus loved everyone. He taught us about what it means to have agape love and unconditional love and to be able to share and show love and taught us many of these things. Yet He never lowered the standard. Last week we actually talked about the woman that was called in adultery and that was brought to Jesus. And we remember what Jesus said as they wanted permission for perhaps from Jesus to stone her. And Jesus said, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they all walked away. I think what we did not mention is what Jesus then said, nor do I condemn you, Jesus said. Now go and sin no more. In our families, we recognize it is not our job to condemn. We may, all, we may not all have dysfunctional families, but none of our families are perfect. Somebody who saw the title of the message today being the dysfunctional family, they asked, are you going to put a picture of my family up there today? Well, we're not doing that. But you've heard the phrase, hate the sin and love the sinner. But be sure that you're loving the sinner in your family, of which we are all sinners, ever as much as you're hating the sin. While so many people and even churches and denominations are seemingly lowering the standards in the name of love, let's be sure that we're defining God's love appropriately. It's not loving to disregard God's word. It's not loving to warn or to not give warning to those who are headed down a wrong pathway or to condone sin. It seems that I'm having more and more different conversations with people who are living together without marriage or they are living with another partner of the same sex without remorse. In my first 20 years of ministry, whenever conversations like this would come up and someone would ask, Preacher, Brother Jeff, what do you think? I, I would try to refrain from telling people what I think, but I would say, well, what, how, that makes a little difference what I think. How do you think God feels about this? And almost without exception, they would say, well, I guess that he's not pleased about this, or I know this is against God's word. That's the first 20 years of my ministry. In the last 20 years, I've recognized that there has been a little bit different approach that I need to take. I still know God's word has not changed. I know that he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And I want to be able to convince all who are headed in a wrong pathway, even if they've convinced themselves of a different kind of truth or of a different kind of love, the kind of love that comes from knowing and following Jesus is better. It is better for them. You may be convinced, we might say. You may be convinced you're happy with your way. But we want you to know that God has something even better in mind and in store for you and a greater purpose. And that's how he defines love. The bad news is that if you are living 
openly in sin or secretly harboring sin that you're either unwilling to repent or you've decided, perhaps as many people do, well, if it's not wrong to me, then it must not be wrong. It's almost always for self-serving reasons and not the kind of love that is prescribed by Jesus. Consider what the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. To where he says, bear one another burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what's, what is the law of Christ? Some of you know and you need to know because it comes up in Scripture, the law of Christ. It is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is, love thy neighbor as thyself. And thy neighbor, in this case, includes your family. So let the law of Christ be the standard in your family. Is everybody doing okay? The next we're going to learn from is Jonadab. Jonadab, we're going to call him the crafty cousin. Look at verse 3, 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 3 says this, But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. I didn't have to be creative in describing Jonadab as a crafty man. Sometimes your translations may say that he was shrewd or even wise meaning that he may have had some wisdom, but the problem is to have wisdom without integrity is probably best described differently, maybe even as crafty. Too bad the cousin could not have used his crafty ways, shrewd or even wise ways for a better use. Jonadab encourages his lusty cousin to pull a Ferris Bueller. Stay home. Pretend you're sick. You'll get a lot of sympathy. Your father, the king, will come see you and you can ask for your half-sister, and then the girl will be trapped. That was his advice. In verse 3, he is called a friend. He's a friend and a cousin, but, but the friend, that's a term used loosely as well, because his friend led him to a road of destruction. You remember the ads that used to run about uh, friends, don't let friends drive drunk? Of course, we use those sometimes for our own purposes, you know, like friends don't let friends go to Bama or go to Auburn. Or maybe in this case, go to Ole Miss or Tennessee. Maybe too soon for that. But even the Bible tells us there is a friend that sticks closer than the brother. But shouldn't it be by definition that family wants what is best for one another and not to help your family to fall further into sin and go down the wrong pathway? We do this by the example that we set. We do it by the advice we give. Amnon got bad advice from his cousin. So what's the lesson? All advice should flow from the Word of God. All advice should flow from the Word of God. Whether it is that you're looking for advice or whether it is that you are giving advice. And by the way, in family, sometimes advice comes without request, often. But you want to be sure what you're listening to or what you're giving is biblical. Sometimes it's obvious that it is. Some other times maybe it's hard to really know reasons that we need to search the Word, spend time in prayer. But the heart willing to submit to the Lord Jesus will find the answer. Do you remember in our journey and our trek through Scripture, we spent some time in the book of the Judges. The time of the Judges was a dark time spiritually. What was the prevailing theme of that time? You might remember one of the times in which it was said more, even among God's people, Judges 21 and 25, 21 verse 25 said, Everyone did what was right. In his own eyes. Well, that can be real dangerous, can it? But it does describe the world in which we live. 
What it cannot describe is the church, this church. What it should not be able to describe is your family, particularly those who are followers of Jesus. The world is in trouble without Jesus anyway, right? The church must be the moral and spiritual compass for the lost world and particularly for the lost members of your family. And when the church loses its direction, when the, those who profess Christ as Savior, when they have lost the center of doing things their own way instead of God's way, then hope for the world and hope for the family becomes fleeting. From Amnon, we learn that love must be the standard as it is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, not as the world or anybody else defines it. From Jonadab, we learn that God's word must be the standard for all that we say, all the advice, and even what we do. We're going to learn something from David in this chapter. And for this particular chapter, we're going to call David the enabler, dad, and king. The enabler, dad, and king. An enabler is someone whose behavior allows a loved one to continue self-destructed patterns of behavior. Let me say that again. An enabler is someone whose behavior allows a loved one to continue self-destructed patterns of behavior. I've got to tell you, this is not one of the good chapters about David. And when we get particularly to 2 Samuel, it seems like it's almost every other chapter. One chapter is a good example. One chapter is a bad example. He's godly David, and here we find sometimes an ungodly David. So when it comes to David, I find myself wanting to be kind of like the lawyer who's asking of the judge when he has a witness on the stand permission to treat the witness hostile as a hostile witness. You've heard maybe something like this. I don't really know what that means, but I have myself wanting to ask permission. Permission to point out all the things that David did wrong. We know that David had at least eight wives as well as many concubines and anybody who ever tries to use David for justification for a mistress or for polygamy, obviously has not read the Bible and seen the results of what happened to David and all the women uh, in his life. Uh, it seems, though, David did love his children. We, this is the greatest glimpse we get into David's life, perhaps, in this interaction with his children. We find that he... We find he grieved over his children. At least four of his children have died. But it seems his emotion does not always transfer to hands-on compassion and time for his children. Now, we might want to give David a pass. I mean, after all, here's David. He is the one who's the king of Israel. He is God's king. He's got, he's got lots of going on, lots of responsibilities that are included. And maybe we might think, well, maybe the Lord's giving it a pass. Maybe he's overlooking this, but... If that were so, I think this episode and this story would not be included in the holy archives of David's life. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 13, 7. It's an example of David indulged the children with whatever asked. Verse 7 simply says, Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Abnon's house and prepare food for him. Well, on the surface, obviously, there's nothing wrong with a sister caring and taking care of a brother or following the dad's advice. But both... Amnon's cousin and both from the sister Tamar have said, your father will give you whatever it is that you want and whatever you ask. Reminded us that our children who need to be loved and need our love as parents and part of our love is to set rules and standards and to discipline. And like our heavenly father who does not give us everything that we want or everything that we ask because he knows not everything we want is best for us. 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 21 says this. It says, when King David heard of all these things, 
he was angry. Now, if you look in at a Bible there and you can do it, take your finger and kind of cover up verse 22 there in that passage for just a moment. If you, uh, when David heard of what his oldest son did to his half-sister, to David's daughter, and the Bible says David is angry, what would you expect David to do? I mean, here's David, the giant killer. Here's David, the one who slew the Philistines. Here's David that outsmarted King Saul. David now the king and the shepherd of Israel. <laughs> you might be thinking, somebody needs to protect the son. The roof's about to come down. Or finally, David will be the dad that he's supposed to be and great discipline's going to take place. But now take your finger off of verse 22 and what do you find David did? Nothing. Come on, David. Comfort your daughter. Come on, David. Have a come to Jesus meeting with Amnon. At least get him into some counseling, set some rules. If not, banish him or if not, imprison him. I'm convinced that had David done any of these things, he would have saved his son's life and the life of many because later we find in the next couple of chapters there's going to be a civil war that takes place with Absalom, his son, versus David, those who are loyal to David, and many will die, and it all stems from this event. So what's our lesson for dads and moms and sons and daughters and grandparents and wherever you are in this family, in your family or whatever season or whatever your age, if you're in the family of God, here's the lesson. Be an example in word and deed. Be an example in word and deed. This is what David was not for his family. Titus chapter 2 and verse 7, New Testament says this. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. Some might argue, now how could David say anything to his sons about their sins after the sins that David had committed? Maybe he was forced not to be able to say a thing. But oh no, what the father should have done for the sons is say, let me, let me let you not walk down the same trail that I've walked. Let me tell you what I have done and let me tell you and learn from my mistakes, not remain silent. But can I tell you, if you're in a dysfunctional family or if you're in an imperfect family, you want to follow God's standards. You want to follow God's plan by example. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, respect and honor your husbands. Children who live in the home, obey your parents. All children, honor their parents. Parents, bring your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. I find it interesting that Solomon wrote this. Solomon, the son of David, wrote this proverb. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, we understand this as a principle which is likely to come true, but not necessarily a promise. However, our children who are brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord are much more likely to be followers of Jesus. Or if a child falls away from church or falls away from growing in their walk with the Lord, they're more likely to come back. Recognizing that even if we could be perfect parents and provide a most godly home life, there is no guarantee that our children will not rebel. story of the prodigal son is evidence of that. But, but there's another hope in this verse. Knowing that it was Solomon who wrote this verse, and that is that in spite of our imperfections as parents and family members, our children can and still find and follow Jesus. But let's give our children every fighting 
chance. Strive to be an example in word and deed. We're also going to learn from Absalom. Absalom, we'll call him the vengeful younger brother. The vengeful younger brother. Absalom becomes the central figure in the next couple of chapters as he leads a rebellion to take over his father's throne, declares himself king for a short time. After he discovers what his older brother did to his sister, though, in, verse, in chapter 13, read verse 22. 2 Samuel 13, verse 22 says, But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. I'm going to guess that if you have a family member that you are not talking to, or if a family member is not talking to you, there's some kind of rift in the family, rift in that relationship. But you probably have a good reason, or maybe they have a good reason. Well, then Absalom have a good reason. Amnon did something despicable with no remorse. While Absalom did nothing for two years, he still planned his revenge. What's the saying? Revenge is a dish best served cold. Recognizing that's not from the Bible, maybe from Godfather or some other, couple of other movies perhaps. But let's ask the question from a godly standard. What should Absalom have done? Probably something short of vengeful murder. Well, let me ask you this. Should he have forgiven Abnon? Did Abnon deserve forgiveness? <laughs> From a human perspective, he did not. But from a godly perspective, forgiveness is not always, in fact, it's seldom deserved because you and I are followers of Jesus and because we have been forgiven of all of our sins that we did not deserve forgiveness. And because you and I are Christ's representatives in our families, we are to forgive even if it is undeserved. We are to forgive even if it is not asked for, even if there is no remorse. Oof, that's a tall order. In fact, I would say it would be impossible for you to do in your family or outside your family. You just can't do it. Were it not for the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that is living in you and because you have been forgiven. I often use the passage in talking with Families from Romans chapter 12 in verse 18 that says, If it is possible as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with one another. So while we cannot determine what other people are doing, we can determine what we're going to do. And we can determine the best way in which we might be able to provide peace. So what do we learn from Absalom? It is this. It's forgiveness is key in every family. Forgiveness is key in every family. Forgiveness does not mean overlooking sin. But it does mean that you're looking for what is best for every family member, not being an enabler and perhaps not helping your family member or helping your family member to be able to see the error of their ways when appropriate, open doors for family members to be able to find Jesus or to be able to get back to growing relationship with Jesus. Ultimately, our motivation should be what is best for each family member and not our own agenda, our own retaliation. At least that's a lot more like Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. I don't think that only applies to family members who really deserve it. We're also going to learn from Tamar. Tamar, we're going to call her the godly daughter and sister. We know that all are sinners, none are perfect, but she's the only one who seems faultless, maybe even godly, 
Listen as he tries to reason with her brother and even uses biblical principles to curb his evil intentions. 2 Samuel chapter 13. Look at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. She reasoned with him. She says this was a sin against God. It's outlined in the law. She knew what God's word said. She said, don't sin against me. It will be a humiliation for me. And also, you will, be con- you will bring you to ruin. So let's make this simple. What do we learn from Tamar? Consider how your actions affect, affect God, family, and self. Proper motivation for our actions and our words is that we want to exalt the name of Jesus in everything that we do. We want what is best for others and be able to point others, particularly our family, to Jesus. And even for self, that we want to be people of integrity that are worthy of the name of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not many redeeming qualities in this story. Take a look a little bit further and consider the rest of the Bible. But you don't have to go far. In chapter 14... We find Absalom who's been in a self-proclaimed exile for a number of years until David is convinced to bring him back to Jerusalem but still refuses to see him. Meanwhile, the ever-scheming Absalom declares that he'll be the next king of Israel even before his father dies. In fact, he works politically in order to turn the hearts of the people away from David and toward him. He declares himself king. And David flees Jerusalem with all those who are loyal to him. We can assume that he flees Jerusalem and from his son because he does not want to have a bloody battle with his own son. The Bible paints a picture of the elder David leaving Jerusalem along with the company of followers, which did number in the thousands. And it's a sad outcome, uh, picture of the outcome of a dysfunctional family with very little hope to be observed, except one detail, perhaps that would not be noticed except by New Testament Jesus followers. Look at with me if you would, 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 23. And it says, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Did you see what might be the difference as a New Testament believer? Does it remind you of any other event? Well, just in case, here's John chapter 18 and verse 1, where it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. A not-so-subtle reminder that Jesus crossed the exact same place that David crossed nearly a full millennium ago, so that in this fallen world, in our imperfect families, there might be hope. For just a few hours after what was written here in John chapter 18 and verse 1, Jesus would be arrested. He would be tried. He would be beaten. He would be ridiculed. He would be convicted falsely and placed on the cross of Calvary. What did Jesus ask while they placed him on the cross of Calvary? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You see, for even though we may have a dysfunctional family And where there is hope for better, 
There is hope for better as you or a member of that family as a follower of Jesus, but never perfect. But all those who place their faith in Jesus are part of the functional forever family. In this family, we have the loving heavenly father who is there to guide us. The self-sacrificing son who has provided salvation and new life and eternal life. And because we're part of that family, we know that we also have the forgiven, saved by grace brothers and sisters in whom will always be our brothers and sisters, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. So I want to ask you this morning for those of us who are here today, those who may be listening live stream, are you part of the functional forever family? Jesus said that he is the only way. He's the only way to the Father. <clears throat> only way to the cross, only way to heaven is because of the cross of Christ. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you don't know that you're part of this family, today I ask you to ask Christ to forgive you of all of your sins and ask Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. And He has promised for all those who genuinely call upon Him will be saved. But the best lesson that we have for all those who are part of the family of God and those who are coming into the family of God is this. God has placed you where you are for this purpose, to represent Jesus. You are where you are with the family in which you have and even the places in which you live and reside so that you might be able to represent Jesus. To those who are also seeking to represent Jesus, to those who are part of the family but maybe not where they need to be, and to those who don't know Christ as their Savior and Lord, you want to be sure that you represent Jesus and point others to the throne so that they might be part of the family as well. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this journey that we're able to be on. Father, to be along with you and to be moving forward in Christ's name. We pray, Father, that we may continue to live a life worthy of the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for families today, families represented here. Father, we know that we have imperfect families. We know that there are situations and problems and crises that we have. But remind us that the Lord continues to be at work in our family. We thank you that you love my family and each family here more than we do. We pray, that Father, that you may use us in whatever situations that we're facing today. We pray also, Father, for those who may be here that are not part of the family as of yet, or maybe even now deciding if they're going to allow Jesus to be Savior and Lord. We pray, Father, and we thank you that you accept us as we are. You change us to who we need to be. But we thank you that it's not according to our deeds, but it's according to what Jesus did for us that makes salvation possible. We lift up these prayers. Pray that you may continue to do a great work as we finish our worship time together. And even as we leave today, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.